good afternoon and welcome to the Nile Boylan podcast. And over the last 13 or 14 months, I suppose, everybody has been suffocated, I suppose, by COVID lockdowns, restrictions. And of course, many people will say that's in the interest of public health. But what, what financial cost? And the financial cost has obviously direct implications to our health as well, because the two are intrinsically linked. So far, it has been speculated that somewhere between 50 to 70 trillion dollars has been spent on COVID-19. That includes everything but doesn't include, by the way, the speculation over the next three or four years and how much money might be lost. So how will we recover when the Irish government are borrowing billions of euro every single week just to cover the cost of COVID-19, including the millions it's costing for the PUB payment as well? Well, to speak to me a little bit more about it and how it's going to affect us economically and how it'll affect property prices is Carl Dieter. And Carl is a financial advisor and a speculator as well. Carl, good afternoon to you. <laughs> Thanks. What a nice introduction. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I've listened to you in the past and you seem to have a good handle on where we're going to go financially. Now, there has been doomsday predictions, i.e. that we're going to go into a Great Depression uh, that was mentioned by the Bank of England. Uh, property prices will fall through the floor. Um, there's massive speculation about unemployment. Uh, but then some people will say, well, hold on. Now, this is going to be like a little bit of a pyramid. You know, we'll bounce back very quickly. Do you think we'll bounce back quickly? Well, I suppose what I can say is there's broadly two scenarios that I think are most likely. Uh, one is to understand that after the the great financial crisis of kind of the late 2000s and into uh, the the first kind of half of the, of the last decade, we actually saw central banks that had had learned to react almost to the point of no return and in fact then we we've had more recent announcements that central banks will go to the point of no return but it's important to see that the interconnectedness of everything is the bit that i find really interesting so you had you know this dot-com boom bust was mostly a shakedown in the stock market and you know a lot of the the real world economy was, was roughly surviving intact but you saw central banks react and then Greenspan gave way to Bernanke, who had studied the Great Depression. His appointment was quite timely um, because when the global financial crisis kicked in, he knew that he want, well, for better or for worse, depending on what you think, he knew he was going to react and react hard. Hard given the time, what he did is, is nothing compared to what we're seeing nowadays. And what they did at that point then was you know, lower rates, try and prime the system, and really keep asset prices up. And in a strange sense, it meant that a lot of the companies that went into the financial crisis, say in the property side, that they're still the same companies today or still huge companies. We didn't really have that cleaning out, didn't really have a reset. And we're seeing the same thing again now, is this this, inter, this rolling hot mess of interconnected crises. And I guess the, the, broad, the broad take from it is that by keeping interest rates really low, we now have what I would call bubble everything. So cryptocurrencies, property, stock market, bond market, you know, every single everything seems to be in a bull run. And that's pretty unheard of in human history. Uh, and typically, that would be a signal of a mania. And you would have had several manias in the past with, uh, you know, um, trading companies in Indonesia, the, you know, the great South uh, South Sea, I'm after forgetting off the top of my head, you would add tulip mania. But I mean, what, we, what, we, what we've done over the last 13 months, we've seen the division of wealth between the rich and the poor getting wider. 
So we've seen the rich getting a lot richer. I mean, there's a third of the population out there who have essentially made money out of COVID-19 and they're doing better. There's a third of the population, pretty much the same, haven't changed. Maybe they work in the public sector and they're getting the same money they always got. Their jobs are intact. And then there's a third of the population in the private sector who have been decimated by this. So that division of wealth has grown wider and wider, hasn't it? That, that, that's kind of my point, though, you see. So what you've got, like if you're a retiree in a house that's paid off, COVID might have affected your ability to go out, but it didn't affect you really financially. Um, if you work for the state, you're unaffected financially because everyone still has a job if you work for municipal government. And, and bear in mind, this is like 300-odd thousand people in a workforce, you know, just over 2 million. So it, it, it is a sizable cohort. Then you've got people who work for multinationals and other institutions, again, fairly unaffected. But what now what you're looking at is, a, is an unemployment rate of, of one in four people, mostly focused at uh, the lower end, less educated people in the country. People on minimum uh, wage. Many yeah, of them on minimum wage. They've been kind of forced out. But they've been subsidized uh, by the state at a, well, at a massive cost, mind you, but they are being subsidized by the state. But this is the point that because the state stepped in to the point of no return, what we're kind of seeing is that the people who are worst affected, they're, they're putting up with it. They don't seem to be saying, no, I'm putting my foot down. You know, there's not mass protest about the removal of freedoms. But then, well, of freedoms. Is, is that not because people keep getting an end in sight? There's breadcrumbs thrown. Only today, for example, Leo Varadkar mentioned that hospitality could be open in July. We could be back to a level of, according to him today, we could be back to a level of normality by August. Boris Johnson is talking about June. Up in the north are talking about June, July. We're looking at August. But when they say normality and they're going to keep social distancing, your restaurant is still only going to be at 50% capacity. Your cinema is only going to be at 50% capacity, if even that. Your retail stores are going to be at you know, a limited capacity. So that's not getting back to normal. So the state are still going to have to keep putting money in there and stimulating these businesses. We can't do that forever, can we? It's, it's normality, but not as you ever knew it. Um, and I would just say that like, like these are the same people who, who promised us two weeks to flatten the curve. So, you know, you, you have to take anything a politician says with a pinch of salt. And they're happy to renege on their promises, which is why they become politicians in the first place. And I don't say that in a disparaging way. It's just to say that politicians are in the business of overpromising, aspirational promising, and then, you know, finding it impossible. But will they, well, yeah, but will they get to the point where they just can't keep stimulating businesses financially, where they literally don't have the money? I mean, we're borrowing money at the moment at 0%. Yeah. Actually, the banks at one stage were paying us to take money. So we're borrowing yeah. money at 0%. So, I mean, in America, they gave every citizen $1,000. They're going to, to do it again. Biden is going to do it again. In Northern Ireland, they're suggesting giving every citizen over the age of 18 a, a voucher for 100 quid. Should we yeah. be throwing out a bit of helicopter money, you know, come the end of the summer? It, it could make sense to take that approach. I mean, the, the whole thing of universal basic incomes or, or, or reverse tax credits, like th these ideas have been around for a long time. I mean, you'd have people as diverse as Martin Luther King to Milton Friedman supporting them in the modern sense of saying, look, just give people money so that they experience no pain. That, 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 that's a bit of a more new way of doing it. But when people talk about this, they also mean very different things. So if you were talking about something that could just help people get by, you know, I think a lot of reasoned people could say, you know, we could live with that if it was well thought out, maybe scrap parts of the welfare system so we don't have an entire machine that is is financed by the welfare system. So like the, the, there's thousands of people working in the welfare system. And I don't mean like social workers and stuff. I'm talking people who just process payments and do all sorts of stuff. It might be easier to just say, look, get revenue to 
to tell people open a bank account you know or, or do whatever way you do it or just pay everyone and then you know there's tax rates and we, we claw that back from people who have more but the, the question is is there an end in it and that's the bit that i'm no longer so sure of because we used to have this conversation again after the the global financial crisis that you know there would be a limit to where this could go and that it would result in inflation because you'd have this massive wall of money coming out it just didn't happen and there's so much excess capacity in the system that inflation doesn't seem likely in its official sense and yet we can see all these things inflating such as house prices so in the news at the moment you've got people talking about how awful it is that these companies are coming in buying up a whole housing estate i think the better question is to ask why aren't we building enough houses in general um, as opposed to it being well, well, the, I, I mean, well, I, well, I think it's obvious over the last year because firstly, construction has been pretty much closed for a lot of the year. The focus uh, has been taken off. But there's no public pressure on politicians to do something about the, the housing crisis, which existed a year and a half ago and all of a sudden doesn't seem to exist anymore. So the focus has been taken off everything. Unless, for example, I mean, if it was a case that you caught COVID by building a house, I'm sure we'd be talking about it. In other words, the focus seems to be just on COVID and nothing else at the moment. Yeah, well, well that, that's the problem with a single serving economy where, where you, you boil everything down to just one particular issue. And we saw, for instance, I saw George Lee on the news the other day talking about the excess death and that it was nowhere near as big as the total COVID. Well, mind you, that was the first time he's actually admitted it because, I mean, George Lee has, has the people have suggested that he likes to bring the doomsday news. But that was the first time he actually suggested that COVID-19, yes, we have 4,000 whatever it is deaths, but many of those people he did mention would have been close to the age that they probably would have died anyway. And I don't mean that in some sort of disparaging manner because every life is worth something. But, but it was the first time that RTE, well, George Lee, would actually have men mentioned that. Yeah, I, I have some empathy in his case, and I'll tell you why. Because I'll, I'll, there, there's different types of economists. There's ones who are very much in the in the after-the-fact analysis. So that's like people who drive looking in the rearview mirror only. And then there's speculative economists um, who, who, who try to determine trends, what's coming next. And that would be the difference, say, between people that you see in the, in the newspaper saying, you know, in a year's time, this is going to happen versus the people who report on after the fact statistics when they're determined. So like George, he couldn't tell you what the, the excess death was because they didn't have a number for it. Okay, and, and, and that's an important understanding. So I mean, in his case, he, he delivers statistics every day. Now, if you want to have an argument, should those statistics be given every day? Are they relevant they? every day? Should they? Do, 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 I mean, does it give him, uh, by the way, can I just mention to, to hi to everybody who's just joined us on Twitter Spaces, by the way, quite a lot of people there. Um, I'm talking to Carl Dieter, who's a financial advisor and also somewhat of a speculator as well. We're talking about how the economy may recover after this. At the end of this interview, in another 10 minutes or so, um, I'll try my best to take a few questions from people on Twitter Spaces. So I will allow people to come on. And if you want to request to speak at that point, you can. But the bad news that we get on a daily basis at RTE, because they deliver this bad news at six o'clock, and the bad news that you get from government. So when you, Michal Martin says something, uh, you know, he's on radio and he's asked, well, when are the pubs going to open? And he goes, oh, I won't be drawn into answering that question. So when they say things like that, does that have a direct knock-on effect to the economy? Because people lose confidence. They're not going to book that hotel in Dingle after all because they've just heard Michal say, well, it might be cancelled again. Yeah, well, I'll put it this way. The nice thing is, no matter what politicians say, we, we always treat politicians as if they have some superpowers, which they don't. They're mostly ineffective. And if anyone ever wants to actually really get a view of how leadership is not as effective as we believe it is, you can actually read the end of the book War and Peace. And the epilogue of it, Tolstoy, actually breaks it down in a superb way. Now, he does it looking at military battles. 
but but it, the point still holds. You see, the people are always a step ahead of politicians. So if you remember back before the first lockdown, even though we were told there's not going to be a lockdown, you know, you don't need to frenzy. Everyone went out and, and, and bought stuff in the shops because they knew it was coming. Uh, if you look at, like, was the first wave over, people were getting back to normal. Um, so the people are always way ahead of the politicians. And if you look at how it's going to end, I think there's different outcomes. So you could have a situation where this big wall of savings is in the economy and people then basically start to splurge. And you're seeing signs where a lot of people are saying they want to do work on their house. I know I tried to order blocks this week. There's a 10-day wait time on it. So you could suddenly have this big spurning of activity and this return to normal that when it gets momentum becomes very strong. And but that, like, but that isn't isn't that what happened the last time back in 2005, 2006, when people cashed in the SSIAs at the time, we suddenly had this big spend. Yeah, well, look, I, I'll also say that I reckon that between the years 2023 and 2026, we're going to see a, a, a property price crash or adjustment, call it whatever you want. It'll be a you know, double digit change in prices. Um, I do think that that's part of a property cycle that's going to come about because at the moment what we're doing is priming the market for hyper supply to where we believe there's such a demand and there there is certainly a demand but there's so much unused planning permissions there's so much stocked activity there's so much an ongoing crisis in homelessness or an insufficient supply of public housing that it's going to make everybody want do this lemming thing where all this cheap money is out there and they're all going to start to build at once. Now, the question is, when that corrects, who gets hurt? And this time around, I think it'll be the same funds that are buying the properties today. We'll, we'll feel the correction, but it won't necessarily be a banking crisis the way it was last time. And, and in that sense, it's actually a, a nicer journey to go on. But the cheap money thing that central banks are creating is actually creating the unaffordable house. The wall of savings is making people buy these unaffordable houses. And that's why I talk about the interconnectedness but to get on to the point about where does it end in a societal sense, you know, I think that when you have these, these massive disruptions in society, you can see that within the same places you can get different outcomes. So if you look at World War II, awful event, you know, over 50 million people dead, uh, huge areas destroyed, you know, society, you know, as bad up as it could be in a lot of places. Um, Ireland actually had a decent World War II in, 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 a, in an economic sense because we were exporting to, to England. But... For instance, in Britain and in Western Europe, people saw the importance of civil liberties. You had a, you know, some good cohesion in society that was a an after effect of the the idea of togetherness that they would have felt while they were under attack from someone else. That can result in so, some good things. You saw, you know, the creation of the NHS. You saw better just societal developments. It can also go the other way though, which is what you saw in Eastern Europe. And that was the, the the rise of the Iron Curtain, a greater call to authority where that became enshrined. And that was a bad outcome in general. And that's the thing that kind of worries me is that within all of this, other than the Irish, you know, civil liberties uh, organization it, and a few lone voices, nobody is really stopping to say, hey, like, what about the forgotten people? And, and the reason is, is because we have them subdued. They're on the opiate of welfare. But when they have to come off and realize that you're not actually going to come off. You're just going to go on to regular dull because the job you thought you had is gone. But the government That's are not going to want that. They're not going to want 23% unemployment. I mean, we had 16.5% unemployment I mean, back no. in 2011. They're not going to want that. 
Yeah, yeah, but what you want has very little to do with what happens. Yeah, but I mean, but yeah, but there's only there's only whatever it is, forty five billion a year comes into this country in taxes. Twenty one billion of it goes out in social welfare payments, including, by the way, uh, for disability and pensioners as well. But it's a large social welfare bill, so half the money that we're making in this country is paid back out to people in social welfare payments of some description. I mean, they're not going to want to see massive unemployment because we just couldn't afford it. So essentially, essentially, this will end when we run out of money. But as you're talking about people being subdued and people not doing anything about it every time we see a bit of relaxation and complacency in people or people saying oh come on let's just go back to normal you know a story like india comes along and we know and i've talked to you about this and we've talked to to other people in relation to this yes it's terrible what's happening in india yes they have you know a healthcare system which is probably not the best in in the majority of the country in some parts it's fine and then you have Take into consideration the population of India, which is 1.3 billion people. Realistically, today, I don't know many people died. I'm assuming somewhere in relation to, if we look at per head of population, probably 10 people dying in this country is exactly what happened in India today. But in saying that, people see this massive story of India and that subdues them again. That puts them back into the road of complacency and that drags this out even longer again. Yeah, I, I talk to people from India and in India basically every single day. And in Pakistan and Sri Lanka, because I, I run a tech firm at the moment, and um, and that's where you know we have people in different countries, and so I'm talking to them all the time. And certainly, they don't have the feeling, at least in the people I'm speaking to, that their their uh, health system is substandard in any way. In fact, India produces a lot of doctors. Go into any hospital in any country in the entire world, and guess what you're going to find? Indian doctors. Uh, they, you know, uh, well, then who's doing this? But I mean, don't get me wrong. There is a problem in India. Of course, they're experiencing quite a lot of cases of, of COVID-19 at the moment. But then do you believe the media is overstating the problem in, in India? Now, I don't get me wrong. The New York Post picked, posted a picture of a woman who had already died last year a second time. And, and that was called out. But in saying that, do you believe that the media is playing a role in keeping this going? I, I don't believe that you can make up dead people. No, you can't. But also, like, I, 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 and you can only die once. And the, the, the thing is, in general, you have this trend in the world where we have a larger and larger cohort of very old people because of all these innovations in medicine and and hygiene are giving us longer lives. And that's a wonderful thing. You know, it, it is truly a wonderful thing. But it also does mean that when you get something that will specifically target a, a certain group and, and tip them over the edge, you are going to see more deaths and it will be in certain groups. But if you look at any country and you start to look at the, uh, the, the mortality effects, you see it continuously going in the same places. Diabetics, obese, dementia, hypertension, uh, and, and age. It, those are the risk factors. And if you look at the risks to people, say, below age 50, and you compare it to other risks that you have anyway, such as heart attack, you, you start to say to yourself, like, I don't walk around terrified of heart attack. Now, it's not a communicable disease. I get that. I'm just saying that, that we've lost sight of statistical fact versus how we how we, how we become like, obsessed with mortality. COVID is is still only the number eight killer in Ireland last time I checked. You wouldn't know that from listening to anything you hear anywhere because people have lost sight of, again, statistical fact versus perceived reality. And that's why, like, I, 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 I work in the north inner city. I'm here every day. I haven't been attacked. But I know that there's people who walk through, you know, uh, Summer Hill and they feel very much at risk and then there's people who've grown up here and lived here all their lives and to them it's home and they don't feel any of that your perception 
and the reality can be very two very different things. And that's that's the thing that, that bothers me is you see facts being presented in a certain way or these ideal scenarios of like, oh, if you just listen to us, if we just lock down harder for longer, this all goes away. And it's like, it's an interconnected world. It doesn't. And once something is here, that's it. Like, and learning to accept that there is a, an endpoint to your life. I mean, that's a, that's a really hard thing for people to get their head around. And I'm not saying that I get any joy from mentioning that, but if you think it's not real, if you think that's not the way the world really works, is that naivety? Is it, is it being unduly influenced? Is it your own belief in, you know, a tooth fairy for adults? I, I'm not sure. Okay. Well, well, one, like, one I, final, really... one final question. And then I'll take one or two questions. If we can, uh, we'll test out this little experiment again with Twitter spaces for those people listening on Twitter at the moment. Final question in relation to the world's economy and not just to Ireland's economy. I mentioned at the start of this podcast that, you know, we're probably, they well, they don't really know how much we're going to spend somewhere. They reckon between 50 and $70 trillion worldwide. I mean, what sort of impact is that going to financially have on the world? Well, it, like when I was looking at like world economic output a few years ago, the, the entire world economy w w was 55 to 60 trillion. And what you're seeing now is basically a whole years of economic output in, in government supports. And, um, you know, that doesn't come without consequences. Now, the question is, if interest rates are low and everyone keeps buying into it, then you can stay irrational for a very long time. If, however, it, someone somewhere wobbles, uh, and in Europe, I think that most likely contender, you'd see the likes of Italy would set that off. But it only takes, this is the whole thing. It, it only takes one kind of Tinder and match moment for everything to kick off. So if you remember the last time, you know, you had this subprime housing crisis and I was like, oh, well that's for people who, you know, borrowed and couldn't repay. Like that's not everyone. And then suddenly boom, it, it, it ran through everyone. Even think about coronavirus itself. Oh, it's not a problem. You know, WHO were telling us it's not a problem. You know, you can't spread from person to person. It's not a thing, you know, it's not this. Suddenly, you know, January, 2020, actually we have a pandemic on our hands. You know, six weeks later, Ireland enters lockdown. And this is from something that traveled all the way from it, 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 its roots in, in, in China to here. So everything can go just dandy, and I hope it does, and maybe it will. But if something unhinges, if the general faith in the system, in government debt, in central bank, and if something gives, you're suddenly going to have this great moment of reckoning. And that is, is part of why I think you see an increase in people looking at things like precious metals, at cryptocurrencies, at like you know, certain types of diversification. That's why you're seeing, you know, even institutional money go into things like the real assets of property in a way that they didn't do before. And that's all driven by the, again, it's this interconnected just mess that, that you're trying to look at and, and perceive what's going to happen next in it when there's too many moving parts to make sense of any of it. It does mean that I don't have any answers. Uh, and I tell people, you know, I'm often wrong, but seldom in doubt. So what that means is a lot of the things I'm saying could be wrong, but I don't have any doubt that we are at a, a point in risk because of, of, of very high stock market valuations, very high property prices, record low interest rates across all countries in the world and record amounts of government debt. If you were to say like, oh, create a mixture of all these different ingredients that would make you know a, 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 a terrible outcome, they would all be in my mix. Okay, 
that and the only caveat that I'll say is, you know, I'm also a person who thought the property prices would drop when the when the pandemic kicked off because I said, look, you're gonna have a rapid rise in unemployment, you shut the economy, that's gonna affect housing, prices will come down. In fact, they rose. And that's why I say that I'm often wrong and seldom in doubt. I was sure the property prices would go down, and yet they didn't. However, all of these ingredients, when taken together, they are not the mixture of things that you would want to see in a healthy economy. In fact, if you could get rid of two or three of them, I think any rational person would say, absolutely. Like, let's let's have that out of the equation. The fact that they're all in the equation at the same time, it worries me. And 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 what comes out of society after whatever is, is the next kind of big event, and there's sure to be one, and I think it will be very much connected to this one, the same as this one is in part connected to the last one, even though you had finance okay. to, to medical <clears throat> crises. That's the stuff that worries me because what I have seen is, is this call to authority, this belief in authoritarianism and 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 a, and a, a national spirit that I thought was uncrushable just get crushed. Like, I don't know. Like, where's all the regular people gone? All right. Well, look, I think we're going to try and take a couple of questions uh, if we can. Uh, we've got about uh, 10 minutes. So we're going to try and take a couple of questions. And uh, the first one, uh, if you want to go to, if I can, um, Graeme Neary, I know, is there. Uh, Graeme, who has actually put quite a lot of stuff up on Twitter in relation to uh, facts and figures. Uh, Graeme, I don't know whether you can hear me or not. Hi there. Um, I just wanted to say that I just wanted to say about India that it's actually number 49 in the world um, in terms of its ranking of COVID deaths per million over the last seven days. And in terms of its uh, total like rankings uh, since the beginning of COVID, it's ranked in the eighth. Um, so there are dozens of other countries with much higher uh, death rate than India uh, the recorded COVID deaths. I think it's important uh, to be skeptical uh, in the same way that, uh, you know, at the start of the COVID crisis, we were shown videos of people falling over on the street in China, um, which were obviously fake. And um, I think distrusting the narrative and focusing on the actual numbers is, um, you know, what most people should be trying to do. Obviously, um, you know, there is a video report um, when they're totally um, separate to any actual uh, statistics. I think I think it's um, I think people are in danger of just being drawn into into a narrative, basically. So I just wanted to get that off my chest and uh, <laughs> say thanks to Carl as well for speaking up on this. All right, okay, thanks very much indeed, Graeme Neary. And Graeme, of course, uh, if you go to his Twitter account, um, he has all the facts and figures and data and graphs and everything to beat the band. But I think the point that he's making, Carl, clearly there is that he's not suggesting, obviously, that people aren't dying in India. Of course they are. Um, but he's suggesting that at the very start of this, we all remember the WhatsApp pictures we got and the videos we got of people stepping over dead bodies in China, which, in fact, never actually happened at all. We now know that COVID-19 doesn't work like that. Um, it is yeah. a virus, sadly, that kills people, but doesn't work like that. So he's basically saying we need to be cautious in how we accept what we're seeing coming from India. Yeah. Look, the thing in India, I mean, India is actually quite pretty amazing country. So, I mean, it's a country that not even 100 years ago, life expectancy was 21 years old. Okay, and it's hard to get your head around that because even 100 years ago in Ireland, life expectancy was double that. 
So as a country, you see massive amounts of debt, massive amounts of starvation. 57,000 people per day, I believe, die in India. Yeah, but, but then you had the Green Revolution. And suddenly countless lives that, that were being lost weren't being lost. And you, you saw a huge rise in the Indian population. But today, life expectancy it still isn't even 70 years old. Whereas in most developed countries, you know, you're up, up, up hitting 80 or even more. And so the thing is, it's it's a nation that has a huge population, still has a lot of vulnerable and sick people. It, it tends to be fairly capable in its medical system. But in India, if 50,000 people die a day, that's a regular day. That's called a Monday of any given year, any time. And, and that's the thing that I, I think is, it's painful to talk about. Like, it's painful to talk about lives as numbers. Because, like Joseph Stalin had said before, that, you know, the loss of a... 10,000 lives was was uh, awful, but the loss of his life would be the tragedy. You know, it was this whole idea that the loss of one, and we can, relate, we can all relate to the loss of one life because most people have lost somebody but, that but they do, love. But, but Carl, just, I need to wrap this up because I know you got to go, but, but I mean, we've talked about the value of lives, right? And there was criticism um, in the UK over this question lately and the value of lives. Are some people's lives worth more than others? Because the HSE, by their own admission, going back before COVID, when I listened to an interview of the person who's responsible for spending the money on medication every year and divvying it out, so to speak, uh, made a suggestion that, you know, it's better to spend X amount of money, or be it a billion euro, on this medication, which can help, you know, I don't know, 300 young people, than spend, you know, it on uh, this medication, which will help 50 older people. In other words, we have to look at, you know, what we're getting for that money because we don't have an endless pit of money. So that seems to suggest that some lives are more valuable than others. So is it wrong to suggest that? Is there something disparaging about saying some lives are worth more than others? I think when you frame it like that, you piss people off, Niall. But I don't think that it means it's not true. So like, if you looked at the tragedy of, of a, a, a six-year-old kid dying who was healthy versus someone who's 99 dying, if you can't see the difference between those two lives and the value and the future potential lost, you are an idiot, I hate to tell you. So, but there are people who say, no, no, you know, you're not comparing like, of course, we're not comparing like for like, because no one is the same. But uh you know, there's so many knock-on effects. If you look at the U.S. Census Bureau looked at a prevalence of anxiety and depressive symptoms in 2019 and then during the pandemic and found that, you know, of of the 330,000 people contacted, they're more than three times likely to screen positive for anxiety disorder, depressive, or both. Uh, you know, with, with more than one out of three screening positive for one or both in the 2020 samples. That stuff knocks ears off people's lives. Uh, you know, there's a huge increase in, in damage from mental health being caused uh, mostly by lockdowns and enforced and, and removal from normal society. The picture for domestic violence, far less than rosy. Uh, you know, they've been looking at statistics and that. The New England Journal of, of Medicine uh, coined it a pandemic within a pandemic because for some stay-at-home orders meant that people were, were, were trapped in with people who, who were their abusers. You know, one in four women one in 10 men are experiencing intimate partner violence at the moment. Now, again, they measure this stuff in, in America. In Ireland, we just say, ah, oh, sure, isn't it tragic? And what about, so like, we, we don't do good data in this country. And that's part of the reason okay. why a, a narrative of fear has persisted. There's so much going on that we're not looking at. And that's the bit that when they're writing the history on this, that that's what bothers me because no one's talking about it. And because they weren't, and because they missed a, the whole point of it, 
they're going to try and not talk about it ever again. Well, we te- well, we tend to tiptoe. We tend to tiptoe around certain things and, and we're afraid to say there's certain things because of the political correctness of the whole thing. Um, just final question, Carl. Someone just sent in a message there a few minutes ago and they said to us that if after this is over, a lot of people go to the banks looking to remortgage their homes, maybe to pay off some of their debts, probably apart from anything else. Um, do you think the banks are going to be able to oblige? Yeah, the banking system is still pretty robust. Uh, we're certainly seeing no evidence of there being any issues like that. So, you know, it, it's not to say that things can't change, but there doesn't seem to be any credit issues. In fact, the banks are probably have more capital than they would like to have at the moment. They're actually quite eager to lend. Um, but they can't really relax lending standards because of the various rules that are being put, you know, enforced from the European Banking Authority, central banks, etc., um, and, and, and people's credit appetite. So okay. you know, it, I, I think that the, the, the banks are in pretty decent shape. Not right. to say that can't change, but they appear to be in decent shape. Well, look, we look forward to some level of normality, hopefully, according to Leo Varadka, by August. I can't see that happening for some reason. I think we're overcautious in this country when it gets we seems to get getting back to normal again. But, Carl, thank you very much, Lee, for taking the time to talk to us today, and I really appreciate it, Carl. Dean. All right, take care.